the command historian, which is a state job. So I work uh, as a civilian among many veterans, uh, soldiers, and airmen of the Florida National Guard, and have been doing so for the past about eight and a half years full time. I have a very renaissance job. It's a it's a wonderful job. I never imagined while I was in undergrad school that I would be working in a museum, much less working in a military setting. But here I am, and I fit in well, I hope. I love the structure. Uh, I'm in a very historic property, so and that's where the historic preservation background really shines through as far as my interest in the old buildings that are here and who lived in them and changed them over time. How do we take care of them now? What are the threats to them? Uh, so par part of that is my mission here as well to help interpret the site history and all the many different occupants that have been here on this post. It began as a chapel with a friary during the really in the late 1500s, but the buildings that stand today are from the 18th century. So site history is a big part of it. There's a small museum here with a small collection of artifacts that I manage. We also have a collection of heritage art, most of which is here in St. Augustine, but some of it's located around the state of Florida in armories. I also do Florida National Guard history, so history of units, of commanders, of individuals, helping, in many cases, veterans who contact me that are looking for information about their own personal history in the Florida National Guard or their family members' service history in the Florida National Guard or its predecessor. A lot of it stems back to the Seminole War period. The property was changed to a military installation during Florida's British period in the 1760s. The soldiers came onto site. It was deemed to be quasi-governmental because it was partially funded by the Crown when it was constructed in the 1700s, and so it was determined to use this for governmental purposes and rearrange the figuration of some of the Coquina buildings so that they expanded and doubled in size the chapel to turn it into a barracks for enlisted soldiers, and then the rooms of the former friary were occupied by the British. That's Allison Simpson, the command historian of the Florida National Guard, and she has the distinct honor of officially opening the 2023 UCF VOP Institute podcast series. There's no better way to set the stage for this series by having Allison be our initial guide as we take our first immersive step into the world of veterans history and of this institute. She literally set the stage for the UCF VOP Institute as the St. Francis Barracks was the official hosting venue of the 10-day event, so we'll have her do the same for us in this series. As you will soon learn, the St. Francis Barracks has a dual role. One is being the official headquarters of the Florida National Guard, and the other is being one of the oldest military landmarks in North America. Allison explains to us this duality by talking about the history of the property from its distant origins to its headquarter operations today. She even throws in a brief history of the Florida National Guard and how her job is much more multifaceted than just knowing that history. Given that half of the episodes you will listen to during this series took place at the St. Francis Barracks, Dr. Lyons and I made it a point of emphasis to have Allison on the mic. I told you last week that you will be transported to St. Augustine, Florida, and this is only the beginning of that educational retreat. From the UCF Department of History and UCF's Veterans Legacy Program, I am Sebastian Garcia, and this is Episode 1 of the 2023 UCF VOP Institute Podcast Series. A very historic property.
We are currently here at the St. Francis Barracks in St. Augustine, Florida, and I have the pleasure of talking with the command historian of the Florida National Guard, which is headquartered here in the St. Francis Barracks, Allison Simpson. Thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sebastian. I appreciate the opportunity. So let's just start off with, you know, just give us a brief introduction of who you are, why you got this job, you know, your interest to it. Okay. So I'm a graduate of the Historic Preservation Program at the what is now the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And when I graduated, I thought maybe I could possibly find a job in my field in our nation's oldest city. So I came here, it's been more than 20 years ago, and did work for the city of St. Augustine before they had a historic preservation department. And after a couple of years, found that I wanted to go try out the nonprofit world. So I worked at a local museum for a few years. And soon after, just went home and started a family and was home for several years until 2005. So I was I was home for about a year, beginning to think about starting a family. And in 2005, the command historian for the Florida National Guard deployed to Afghanistan with our 53rd Infantry Brigade. So because of my local connections in this community, someone called and said, hey, maybe you would like to fill in for this job for about a year, which I did. Then I went home and, and had a family and was home for about seven years, until which time the guard called me back and said, hey, the command historian has returned, of course, but he needed some assistance. So maybe you would be interested in coming and working part-time. So I did that for a couple of years, and when he retired, I was I applied for this position as the command historian, which is a state job. So I work uh, as a civilian among many veterans, uh, soldiers, and airmen of the Florida National Guard, and have been doing so for the past about eight and a half years full-time. When people hear command historian, what does that exactly entail? What do you do? I have a very renaissance job. It's a it's a wonderful job. I never imagined while I was in undergrad school that I would be working in a museum, much less working in a military setting. But here I am, and I fit in well, I hope. I love the structure. Uh, I'm in a very historic property. So and that's where the historic preservation background really shines through as far as my interest in the old buildings that are here and who lived in them and changed them over time. How do we take care of them now? What are the threats to them? Uh, so par part of that is my mission here as well to help interpret the site history and all the many different occupants that have been here on this post. Uh, it began as a chapel with a friary during the really in the late 1500s, but the buildings that stand today are from the 18th century. So site history is a big part of it. There is a small museum here with a small collection of artifacts that I manage. We also have a collection of heritage art, most of which is here in St. Augustine, but some of it's located around the state of Florida in armories. I also do Florida National Guard history, so history of units, of commanders, of individuals, helping, in many cases, veterans who contact me that are looking for information about their own personal history in the Florida National Guard or their family members' service history in the Florida National Guard or its predecessor. A lot of it stems back to the Seminole War period. Yeah, Dr. Lyons was right. You have a really cool job. I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned it right now in your answer, the origins of this building that we're in right now, the St. Francis Barracks, which 
will probably be the coolest place I've ever done a podcast or ever will ever do a podcast because this is, you know, it's, it's in theme. It's history podcast, historic building. Talk yeah. to me a little bit more about just the history of this building. Sure. So we're on about five and a half acres of downtown in the nation's oldest city. And today we have 15 historic buildings on site. Of course, that total amount of property includes federal property. I'm including the National Cemetery in that estimation of acreage that we have here at St. Francis Barracks. This was the southern end of St. Augustine within the colonial walled city, so of the 18th century. Colonel Moore, when he came and tried to take siege of St. Augustine in late 1702, wound up burning all of St. Augustine at the end of his attempted siege, and this property had to be reconstructed. So we know that the first two iterations of buildings on site were wood chapel with friary, and then in the early 1700s, the Franciscans rebuilt using the local native coquina, which is kind of like a sandstone with seashells naturally cemented Mm -hmm. within it. So it took about 20 years to build first the chapel. We know that that was completed in 1737, and then the friary with 20 to 25 cells for friars to live here, also to have a school, to have the infirmary, to have the retirement home for all of those friars that were serving out in the fields and the missions across Florida at the time. This became their headquarters by 1612. And so this is the central hub, and we see that in the uh, 1670s, a bishop came from Cuba to conduct an inspection. So it's interesting to see the parallels between how the military and the religious use of this property seem to have all these commonalities. Right. The property was changed to a military installation during Florida's British period in the 1760s. The soldiers came onto site. It was deemed to be quasi-governmental because it was partially funded by the crown when it was constructed in the 1700s. And so it was determined to use this for governmental purposes and rearrange the figuration of some of the Coquina buildings so that they expanded and doubled in size the chapel to turn it into a barracks for enlisted soldiers. And then the rooms of the former friary were occupied by British officers. And this room that we're in right now, I was told that it was at some point, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, you are the expert here, that that was an oven over there and yes. they found bottles and that's those bottles that are to the right. I always say this a lot for the frequent listeners of this podcast. They know that I always say this. I wish this was a video podcast. There's not a time more so that I wish this was a video <laughs> podcast because this place is really cool, really historic. But yes. yeah, just talk to us a little bit about the, actual, the specific room we are sitting sure. in. Sure. So this property became U.S. federal property from the time of its use as a military barracks beginning in the 1760s with the British. When the Spanish returned, they continued that use of this property. So there were many different regiments of soldiers who lived at St. Francis Barracks, as it was known. And then in the 19th century, when Florida joins the United States as a territory, this becomes a reservation or a post of the U.S. Army. So this is until 1900 occupied by soldiers of the U.S. Army. In 1907, the adjutant general, who was the commander of the Florida State Troops at the time, as it was called, the predecessor of the Florida National Guard, he secured a lease with the federal government to bring the headquarters from Tallahassee 
for the Florida State troops back here to St. Augustine, Florida's colonial capital. And when he did so, he wrote in his annual report to the governor talking about these rooms and all of these buildings and how they used them and how how they were occupied. We had flags on display and all of the equipment that was then in the inventory of the Florida State troops in one wing of the building. And in the room that we're in, which was part of the friary of the 18th century, they talked about the old stone vaults and These spaces that make up the Officers Club and Museum today, really that's how they were described. They didn't have any other particular use as described in that 1908 report to the the governor. So in the middle of the 20th century, the boss, Major General Henry McMillan was his name, and he was very much um, involved in this community of St. Augustine and its plans to celebrate the 400th birthday of St. Augustine. So he put together a team of people to furnish these particular old stone vault rooms of this section of the friary as a museum with archive and as the officers club. And one of the decisions that was made then in 1962 was to pull away the plaster from the interior wall surfaces and expose the coquina so that we can see things like the use of different shapes of coquina stone as lentils above doors and windows and above the fireplace, you can clearly see the cut marks in the coquina. When they exposed the walls, that's when they discovered this probably 1820s or 1830s bake oven. It's a beehive style bake oven with the wood box and inside had been carefully placed all of these 1700s and 1800s bottles that the archaeology team of 1962 labeled for us kindly. Right, right, right. (laughs) And a question that I often receive when talking about this is, were the bottles empty? And so (laughs) in the 1830s, when this room was used and identified as the officer's kitchen, yes, (laughs) yes, all of these bottles were discovered as empty. (laughs) So is it fair to say that this is St. Francis Barracks in general is one of the oldest military buildings or just buildings in general in the United States? Yeah, I would I would say that's fair to say as far as a military use of a building and in St. Augustine this is one of the older buildings in town this collection of 3 core buildings that make up the St. Francis Barracks. Uh, we call it St. Francis Barracks and it includes other 19th century buildings. Um, We also have on post another 18th century building that shows up on a map of 1782. That was known as the King's Bakery, and it's across Marine Street closer to Matanzas River, the intercoastal waterway across from us to our east. And uh, that building was constructed while this was occupied by British soldiers to help feed everyone that was stationed here. Apparently, they imported the wood. They had exhausted all of the local stores of wood and started going farther and farther out. So they had to ship them in on vessels by water and offload in the area of what is today our formal parade ground. When I asked you about basically your job description, part of your job is also 
you know the history of the Florida National Guard. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through that history briefly? Sure. So it's it's only, uh, what year is it? (laughs) 457, I think we're coming up on the anniversary of of years. So as long as St. Augustine has existed, about one week after the founding of St. Augustine, Founders Day here is September 8th. And on September 16th, Pedro Menendez de Avilés, who is the city's founder and first governor of Florida, calls together his captains of the 500 regulars, the professional soldiers that he brought with him to basically enforce Spanish colonialism's hold on on this area of what is now the United States. And so with that, when when they leave the newly established and fortified community of St. Augustine, and that's the area of today's Fountain of Youth archaeological property, we know that that is the first authentic settlement of St. Augustine. Left behind is a group of about 100 civilians, and about half of those were men who qualified for service as the authorized militia. So they, they could have defended this community. They were authorized by the Spanish government to do so. Did they take a muster roll? I have not come across that in my research. I also don't read that period of Spanish. Or, <laughs> But yes, there were civilians who were here. That is the date that the Florida National Guard recognizes as the beginning of a militia heritage in this country. So we commemorate that each year around September 16th, and we'll have an event that usually includes living historians that come with reproduction weaponry from that period, and we'll have a parade formation on the parade field out front that includes current serving soldiers and airmen of the Florida Guard that stand in formation, and then they fire off the howitzers there, and then the the reenactors fire their weaponry as well. That's nice. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the methodologies you use when you're trying to help veterans find their personal histories or discover their personal histories. One of the things I always felt would have been really helpful for me as a museum employee looking up fine arts and decorative arts or the ownership of properties. You know, the the job that I had in museum here years ago was at a historic house museum that included nine houses on a block of downtown St. Augustine. And I traced back the chain of title for all of those properties to see who owned and occupied them. So things like city directory research, it all boils down to genealogy. So I had always thought uh, my whole career, boy, I wish I had taken some classes and how to do genealogy, because that is where you really hone in those research skills, looking at the census documents. I would probably start at the census records, city directories, if they have, if I am looking for someone who has service. But I also, of course, I would search Fold 3 for service records. I would search the National Archives for the archival database of enlistment records. I would also search family members. And that's that's something that you learn in genealogy studies is the fan, the branch out and Mm -hmm. research all other members of their community, if they're immediate family members or people that were neighbors, because there are always other clues to find. Yep. hundred percent. I recently attended the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum, which was in conjunction with the Florida State Genealogical Society. And yeah, fan. I remember that they were emphasizing fan of friends, associates, neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what other other research projects are you currently working on right now, if any? Yeah, so I have a number of 
ones that I begin <laughs> and then I will get pulled away to do things like maybe take a painting down the art to the art conservator who is in Southwest Florida, or I do offer tours of this property pretty often. I make presentations. And so sometimes that takes my focus away from these ongoing research projects, but I'm trying to look at each community where there is a current Florida National Guard presence, whether it's army or air, company size or battalion size, and see, try to trace it back and see what that community, how far back in time can I recognize that there has been a military presence of the state military, and then how has that changed over time? One thing that I'm really particularly interested in is this 1870 report of our adjutant general that identifies it's either 90 or 92 captains that served in that time. Well, that's telling me that they were captains of companies at various locations, and I've been trying to go through and figure out who these individuals are. So again, it's back to sort of genealogy research, right? but to identify the structure and organization of the state troops right after Florida was reauthorized and had passed its constitution and could govern itself again. And what I'm finding is that a number of these men that were listed as captains were African Americans. Mm. And so in the 19th century, we have many units of African American soldiers that also are officered by African Americans, which was unique because in the Civil War, what I'm seeing here, at least there, there were a couple of different units that were stationed here at St. Francis Barracks that were Union troops, and they had white officers. Wow. That's, even though they were they were black Union troops. Right. That's very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So you basically have done it right now talking with me, but just give us a little preview of, uh, of what you're going to talk about on Thursday's tour session, History of St. Francis Barracks and the Florida National Guard. What are some some things you're going to um, talk about, emphasize with the audience. This is also a little bit of a selfish question because as I told you yesterday, if I had known that was the next day, right. I would have stayed an extra day. But so yeah, it's part of a little selfish well, question. Well, Sebastian, you'll have to come back yeah. and, and take the tour. <laughs> um, any Any of those interested persons who are listening to this podcast in the future, just contact me directly. So I do offer tours to civilian groups, to veterans to families that ever it's open to everyone it's a state property just because this is the headquarters of the florida national guard you have to be escorted into the property so i don't do any tours on demand they have to be scheduled in Mm. advance and you can find me and contact me and and coordinate with me directly to do so i'm always happy to do that a couple years back i wanted to calculate and get an idea of how many people were coming through my very small museum And I tallied it up to about 850 people that I had directly given a guided tour to. And the property is also available for rentals, things like birthday parties and lots of wedding receptions are held here. So the museum would get more exposure through events like that where I'm not necessarily here. But the tour that I give talks both about the site history back to the 1580s as much as I know and can remember, because I do find that I'm having to go back and reread things that I had learned years ago. So I talk a lot about the Franciscan occupation, 
of this property. There was an archaeological excavation here in 1988 that was undertaken in coordination with the University of Florida and their team. Uh, Kate Hoffman was the site supervisor at the time, and of course her supervisor was a, a name that's well known here in St. Augustine colonial archaeology is Kathy Deegan. So Dr. Deegan oversaw that. And that was to understand more about the cultural history of this property before some new construction was going to take place. So some of these spaces have now been built over top. The room where all the students are meeting from UCF is one of those spaces. Mm. So I talk a lot about changes in the buildings that are here, uh, how buildings have been constructed through time, and how some of them are no longer here. And then, of course, I add to that with the history of the Florida National Guard. And usually I'll cater it to if I know that a particular group is interested in more Air National Guard history. I'll talk more about them. Yeah, I just try to find things that may relate to whatever group it is that's visiting with me. Right. And since we've mentioned that your job is so cool, um, <laughs> I want to know if there's any other things you haven't mentioned yet that add to that, for lack of a better word, coolness of your job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when I first started working here again, because I worked here in 2005, and then I came back in 2013 as a part-time employee, and you can look around in this space and see there's a lot of, it looks like the walls are a little dusty. The coquina in some areas is compromised in that it's sealant, so that in the 1960s, these walls were shellacked to seal in the coquina. And since then, uh, air conditioning has been added to these spaces. So we have this real issue of how do we maintain this 18th century historic structure that's made out of coquina that acts like a sponge and wicks up all of the groundwater. And then as the water travels through the stone, it wants to come particularly inside the building and kind of ruins the finished surfaces of some of our interior walls. And my big thought was, you know, I don't want to be sitting in here one day and then have the second floor come down on my head. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've tried to take care of all these items around me. That's a fair concern. Yeah. yeah. And so how do we... How do we mitigate this issue of rising damp and efflorescence in this historic coquina? And so I began asking other people that occupied and owned coquina, historic coquina buildings in St. Augustine, of which I probably spoke to a dozen different people in town, including the National Park Service over at the Castillo. And what I learned was that every example of these locations has a different microenvironment, a different set of problems based on whatever their particular environment is that they're building. So that's kind of been an ongoing question of mine. What is exactly the best? How can we make a big change? You know, I work for the government. It's not a privately owned set of buildings. And there are lots of factors and forces that come to play when you're trying to make changes to historic buildings for the sake of preserving and maintaining long-term maintenance of historic buildings. But first we need to identify what is the best treatment for these. We are threatened with flood often. In 2016 and in 2017, we had Hurricanes Matthew and Irma who impacted this part of downtown St. Augustine. Uh, I'm sure many people saw on the news all the floodings, especially on the Bayfront. 
these buildings were impacted and we continue to be aware of, of future threats to the site. So you know, that's another another big important consideration of ours as far as just being able to still occupy the buildings. My final question for you, Allison, which you're doing great. So and thank you again for taking some time out of your busy day to talk with me about your job, your cool job, to <laughs> emphasize the coolness again. A big part of arguably the biggest part of this UCF VOP Institute is, you know, the public component of history, you know, reaching out to whether it's normal civilians in your tours or for these teachers, their K-12 students. Why do you think it's important to expand specifically veterans history? Because that's what we're all, you know, Mm -hmm. focusing on during this institute. But just in general, why do you think it's important to have that public element of history? Well, for me, it's all family history. So whether it's my ancestor or your ancestor, I relate to it as this is this is my family. So it it's inherently important to talk about how did an individual impact their community? How did they impact our state and nation? And so coming from the perspective of studying Florida National Guard members, they're in every community in Florida and they if they don't live there, they may have responded to some event in these communities across Florida. So this is a big push that I have personally in my job. Probably a better answer to your last question would be that I'm trying to engage more with currently serving members of the Florida National Guard so that they will reach back and share with me some of their own personal experiences. And one of the things that's come up in this UCF VLP Institute this week is this concept of doing oral history interviews, the practice of doing oral history interviews. And I think that those are possibly the best way to capture some history right now from from the memories of people who have had these experiences before too much time has passed and they forget mm-hmm. things. So we, we talked about that a little bit yesterday, that in some cases, your memory can be changed mm-hmm. because of what you're seeing since the event happened. Right. Um, social media or uh, movies and things can influence how maybe we remember our own past if, if enough time has passed. And so I think that just talking with living veterans is a really impactful way to pay tribute to them and make sure that their legacies are remembered. 100% agree with you. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for again, taking some time out of your busy day here at the 2023 UCF VOP Institute. Thank you for hosting us here at the St. Francis Barracks. This is a really as you've mentioned, a historic building. And for me personally, this is just a a treat for me to have a, a history podcast and a history building. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. On the next episode of the 2023 UCF VOP Institute podcast series. I found a Marine Corps fellowship. I applied for it and I had was going to sort of try to integrate to make this fellowship fit with my diplomatic history. I was going to look at Marines in Mexican-American War compared to the Veracruz incident in 1914 mm. and compare and contrast and see, okay, how had diplomacy changed? 
Then I walk into the archives talking about paths veering, and I'm reading these letters from Marines far from home in the Mexican-American War. They're describing themselves as soldiers, and for you know, all the Marines that I ever knew, you know, Jim wants to hit me. He wants to punch <laughs> me right now because I just <laughs> called him a soldier. And they didn't have the same pride, or some may even say arrogance, that... I, you know, saw it in so many Marines. And so that formulated my question right then and there. How did the Marine Corps turn, morph into the institution that I knew? And how did the culture seem to be so similar for my dad in Vietnam and then my husband? And just tiny little details like Marines facing their shoes, not with the toe towards the wall, but flipping them around and having them face out. Both my dad and my husband did that from their their boot camp experiences so the weird sort of not weird <laughs> unique characteristics that's of, more polite thank you <laughs> the, the, you know diplomatic right <laughs> the institution that I could see and so I wanted to understand how that came to be and how the Marine Corps really constructed this culture that most people have assumed was just always there and it wasn't it was crafted between 1874 and 1918 as I'd argue the Greeks are who we look back to so much and they really shape our identity and our image of, of what a warrior should be even though we it's all a construction just like the marine corps mm. the more that we learn about greek warfare we realize that the spartans are not these sort of fearless invincible warriors that we think a lot of that was the myth that they that they sold and that has of course a psychological advantage this episode was directed produced Written, edited, and hosted by me, Sebastian Garcia, and featured Allison Simpson. Executive producers are me, Sebastian Garcia, and Dr. Amelia Lyons. The 2023 UCF VOP Institute podcast series is brought to you by the UCF Department of History and UCF's Veterans Legacy Program, a partnership with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs National Cemetery Administration.